All right, we're going to start today with uh, Psalm number five to the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice shall hear, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction, their throat is an open tomb, they flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God, let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out into the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield." Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this just beautiful morning. It's not as hot as last week, and uh, it's really nice out here. We thank you that you've withheld the rain so far today, and I thank you for each person that's come today, despite what is still rather uncomfortable heat, and I ask that you bless each one of them with something personally, in their uh, maybe in their uh, thoughts or in their understanding of your word, and uh, may this service just be pleasing to you. May you be glorified through it. Look after each person here in the week ahead and uh, just fill them with thoughts of you, thoughts of pursuing you, thoughts of the glory of what you've done in human history, especially through the work of your son, Jesus, who all these pictures that we've been looking at point to again and again and again. It's all about Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for his cross. And we thank you for the resurrection, which is the sure promise of eternal life for each of us who have called on him. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen. All right, let's see here. We uh, uh, Just a few announcements once again. I never have very many, but uh, uh, we've been working on the building, which will be our church building over in uh, Superior Avenue. And uh, lots of things this week. It's funny how when nothing gets done and then you see just a little thing happen, it looks like a lot was done, and, uh, but a lot was done this week. And uh, in addition to the, the framing and the roof getting put up, and the, they put on a, a solid steel back door, and uh, th- uh, those kinds of things have been finished. And uh, in the week ahead, if we get the uh, electricity moved, then we will also have um, uh, the roof completed. And uh, let's see here, uh, just all kinds of little things coming in the week ahead. The plumber will be out again, the electricians will be out again. And um, so things are really moving quickly. And my wife here is going insane because there's so many decisions to make about tile and about the carpet and about this and that. And she, she said a day ago, it, it's overwhelming. But I know she can handle it. I've given her all that kind of stuff because I don't want, if you saw a church the way I'd want it, there'd be tie-dye walls and there'd be, you know, there'd be pictures of seagulls flying on the walls and whatever. But uh, uh, she will have something that is really nice. I'm sure of it. But she, all of those decisions get deferred to her. So uh, that's what she's been doing. And uh, uh, no matter what, it's going to look good. She's got a very good eye about these things. But um, we, uh, today is our 83rd Genesis sermon. It's the uh, last three verses of Genesis 33. 
And uh, I want to make sure you understand, and I will say this again before we leave, there will be no service out here next week. I, uh, I'll be in Massachusetts for one week. It's the hardest week of my year every year. It's physically very demanding. I have to go up and cut up trees and cut down trees and, uh, uh, you know, chop up wood and just a lot of work to help my father. And uh, so I won't be here. And uh, Paul cannot preach. He doesn't know what his schedule is going to be like. So we're just not going to have a service. And uh, I apologize about that. But if somebody here, you know, if, if you want to do this, come up to me and tell me. If you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, maybe I can get my son to do it. But if somebody would be willing to come out here for 30 minutes from, say, uh, uh, 945 until 1015, in case somebody shows up, because a lot of people, that, like last week, they all saw this in the newspaper and they came out. We had probably 30 people, and most of them were from out of state. And uh, so if somebody wants to do that, just let me know. And if not, I'll try to find somebody to be here for just 20 minutes. My wife can't do it because she works next week. Um, if anybody's never been scripturally baptized and you want to do that, I'll do that today or any day. It's simply a picture of what uh, Christ did for you, and you are saying, I want to follow him in that. It's a picture of being buried with him in his death and raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. So if that's something you want to do, take you right out there and dunk you today or anytime. And um, uh, one more thing, I'm not going to do any New Testament reading. Uh, most people that come here regularly know this. It's just hot, and uh, so we'll finish up quickly and uh, uh, just have the sermon and a couple other short things, and uh, then we'll be out of here. But uh, uh, we'll read the sixth psalm, and then after that we'll get into our, our uh, sermon for the day. But let me go ahead and read you uh, psalm number six so we can praise the Lord just a little bit more. Psalm number six, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be greatly ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Before we get into the uh, actual sermon, I do something every week that I really enjoy doing, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. It's uh, This Day in History, and uh, today is the 28th of July, and on this day in 1821, Peru declared its independence from Spain, and uh, not really important to me. I've never been to Peru, and I, I know very few Peruvians. I do know one, though, and uh, the reason why I included this is because he's a nice guy, and uh, he and his wife have a restaurant right down the road just by 7-Eleven. It's called Javier's. So if you have never had Peruvian food, you might go there and try it out, and I think you'll enjoy it. But uh, that's my little plug for Javier and his wife, Mary. And uh, I've actually known Mary since I was probably this big. So uh, she lived right down the road for many years. And uh, uh, But uh, that's why I included that. And then uh, this day, 28 July in 1865, man, you talk about good news. The American Dental Association proposed its first code of ethics. So... I, I got to tell you what, if you, if you didn't have ethics in that business, you could really take it out on your patients. 
So I'm, I'm glad that they have that, and I'm glad they've continued to come up with more ethical treatment of people all along. And I'm not saying making an indictment on dentists. I'm just saying that where they're working is it's really close to home. So uh, anyway, uh, same day, 1868, uh, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was declared in effect. Now, does anybody know what the 14th Constitution is for? It's for due process of law. And I'm surprised that didn't actually go back to the beginning, but uh, uh, obviously the need was felt uh, to include that, and uh, I'm glad they did. So uh, if you don't quite understand it, just pull out. I, I have a copy of the Constitution right down here. If anybody wants to uh, read that before we go, just grab that, and it'll tell you exactly the wording of it. Um, again, in this uh, day in 1896, in this one, unless you can understand what it was like in 1896 and before that, in order to get to this point, you may not appreciate it, but people that have been in Florida for a long time will. Um, the uh, city of Miami, Florida, was incorporated. And I think, you know, 1896, there was no such thing as air conditioning. There was no such thing as uh, electric pumps for uh, pumping up water or any of the things that we just take for granted. And if you think what it would be like in your life living here in Florida for a month, just a month without those things, most of us would not make it. I, I'm certain of that. We would not make it. And I think how hardy those people were to come down. And they went into Dade County. They cut down these giant Dade County uh, pines, which are used in wood all around the old buildings, all around Florida. I, how they did that, I can't even imagine. And, you know, now we have chainsaws, and it's still a lot of work. And the heat and the mosquitoes and the swamps and uh, just every possible thing that could come against you. 1896 people were doing this and they'd obviously been doing it for quite a while in order for it to be incorporated but uh, uh, that was a real achievement and uh, then in 1914 on this day World War I officially began it was a uh, struggle between Austria-Hungary Austria against the uh, Serbs and uh, of course that area led also to World War II we had a Serbian conflict under Bill Clinton and it's a very troubled part of the world. A lot of it is uh, ethnically uh, brought about, and some of it includes ethno-religious implications. You know, you got Muslims over there, you got Christians, you got these different warring factions, and uh, so it's a real hot spot for the world. And uh, that was this day in 1914, and how many hundreds and hundreds—I think millions of people died in World War One, uh, just you know, because people can't get along. But uh, that'll change someday, and we'll talk about that today in our sermon, actually. Um, 1941, plans for the Pentagon were approved by the House of Representatives. I don't know if it's still true, but the Pentagon was, if not still is, the uh, largest building in the world. If you've ever flown over it, flying into Lake Dulles, uh, you know that it takes about four and a half hours to fly over the building. It's immense. I'm kidding, of course, but it really is a big building, and there's no mistaking it when you see it. Uh, when that uh, 7, I think it was 727 or 707 flew into it, yes, it caused damage and people died, but most of the building didn't even know it had happened. I mean, it's just this massive, massive structure. Um, then in 1945, a U.S. Army bomber crashed into the 79th floor of New York City's Empire State Building. And uh, 14 people were killed, 26 were injured. And you could use this as a great example, or you could go so far as to use uh, September 11, 2001 as an example, where 3,000-some people died, that not one of those people knew that they were going to go into this building and go up, say, to the, uh, the you know, observation tower and have their latte, and uh, just a few minutes later decide, I'm going to jump out of this building instead of burning to death. 
apparently jumping is preferable to burning because we saw how many people do that. And not one of those people thought that morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to die in an airplane hitting the building I'm going to. Not one of them. And we don't know the end of our existence from moment to moment. I say it every week and uh, I, I enjoy saying this because somebody always looks up, but one of these big tree branches could break and fall on you right now. And uh, it's the end of you. And if you are not right with the Lord when that happens, then your destiny will be far different than if you are right with the Lord. And these people here, those uh, 14 people and the 26 were injured, the 26 that were injured found God's grace and hopefully they found the Lord if they didn't know him first. But uh, this is the way of the world. Um, 1951, this is just six years later, the uh, Walt Disney film Alice in Wonderland was released. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, a, a fun movie to watch. It was uh, written by Lewis Carroll, which is his, uh, his surname, it's not, or pen name, it's not his real name. But anyway, he um, uh, wrote it about an opium experience. He was an opium addict, and that's why it's so bizarre. But at the same time, I mean, regardless of its roots, you can't find fault in everything just because it comes from error. Good things do come out of error, and God proves that every day. But uh, uh, I know that, uh, who was it, Tim Burton, I think, did another Alice in Wonderland. And I've never watched it, but if it was him, in fact, then it was probably pretty bizarre. But, uh, uh, you know, big stuff from the American uh, film industry back in 1951. And 1965, something that affects uh, some of us personally, uh, the U.S. President Johnson announced that he was increasing the number of American troops in South Vietnam from 75,000 to 125,000. So a bump of 50,000 men going off. And uh, as you know, more than 50,000 Americans died in that conflict. And uh, once again, put on your boots in the morning and somebody takes them off for you at night. You don't know your last day. I've got a guy that I do mission work every single day of my life, or every Saturday of my life. We go down there and we uh, do mission work in the projects together. And he was shot twice. He was shot once through his leg, and it, it, it's bizarre looking at his leg because the muscle goes around this, this weird hole. And you look at it, you think, how can his leg support itself? But that's the marvel of how God has woven us together. But he also got shot right here. And had he not had a, uh, uh, a clip for his uh, M16 right there, it would have just destroyed him. But in fact, it knocked him out and he came to and uh, uh, he went through a lot of struggles in his life trying to process all of this and uh, uh, addictions and uh, felony convictions and finally he met the Lord. And you talk about a servant of the Lord, there's none other like him, just an unbelievable person. But uh, uh, war can ruin people, but it can also lead them to think about their lives and finally come to a conclusion that, uh, you know, there is a God and he saved me for a particular reason. And thank God he did that for Tom. What a good man. I tell you, what a beautiful person. Um, 1973, the uh, bionic man, Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett, the sweetheart of every person of my generation when I was that old, they got married on this day. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun to think about, but at the same time, Farrah Fawcett, they ended up getting divorced and then Farrah Fawcett uh, died of cancer. And, uh, you know, I saw her in a movie called The Apostle with um, Robert Duvall, and she was old. Her face was, you know, uh, we, we get old. We, we tire out. Our bodies get physically tired, and we die. And uh, the Bible, especially in Isaiah, I think it's 45 or uh, anyway, 45, I think, it talks about how the young men will grow old and grow faint and weary, but those who trust in the Lord will 
be renewed and they'll take off like uh, they'll be supported as if on wings of eagles. And I completely abuse that passage just now, but you understand that the Lord is the one who sustains us and he is the one that gives us strength and power. It's not in an arm of flesh. I, can't, I tell you what, I used to work very hard and now I can hardly lift my arms in the morning. I just, you get old. So please remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of evil come when you say, I find no pleasure in them. That's what the Bible would ask you to do. Think of the Lord now. Think of him now. Um, in 1982, San Francisco, California became the first U.S. city and the first city in the United States to uh, violate our Second Amendment rights by banning handguns. And, uh, of course, uh, the Supreme Court overturned those kind of things. Chicago, just a week or two ago, became the last city in the nation to actually develop a program to authorize people to bear arms because what they had been doing and what these people had been doing was violating our Second Amendment rights. It is an individual right. It is not a militia right. And uh, I, I am a firm supporter in our Second Amendment, which I will say from time to time, uh, the First Amendment is our most important amendment to the Constitution in reality. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and these things. But the Second Amendment is the most important amendment in practice. Because if you do not have a Second Amendment, your First Amendment will be gone that year. That's all there is to it. Don't be, don't be deceived by people that say that we're safer without guns. When they take away your guns, crime always goes up and the government intrudes. So it's the most important uh, uh, amendment in practice. 1991, Dennis Martinez. Uh, you know, you know. I say this week after week. I don't like sports. I'm not a sports person. But this is so unusual how these patterns keep coming up that I had to include this. 1991, on this day, Dennis Martinez of the Montreal Expos pitched the 13th perfect game in Major League Baseball history. Okay, well, in and of itself, no big deal. But this same day, 28 July in 1994, Kenny Rogers of the Texas Rangers pitched the 14th perfect game in Major League Baseball history. So on the same day, just a couple years apart, you have these perfect uh, uh, games. And uh, he also makes great chicken, and he's a great singer. I, I'm kidding. That's not the same Kenny Rogers. But uh, anyway, uh, that's this day in history, and I hope you learned something that you'll carry with you and a uh, couple squiggles for your brain. Um, I'll go ahead and read you our sermon text for today. And uh, then we'll get right into the sermon. This is uh, Genesis 33. It's the last three verses of the chapter. It's uh, verses 18 through 20. Then Je listen carefully and try to think, if you've been to these sermons and you've been following what Jacob has been picturing, try to think what God is trying to tell me out of here. What is it? Because it's interesting, but so what? Unless God is trying to show you something, it doesn't really have any ultimate purpose in your life other than maybe making you, uh, you know, don't make this mistake or don't make that mistake. But there is something that God is trying to tell us, and it's right here. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram. And he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Yisrael. Now, last week, before I finished up, I uh, told the people that were in attendance that I wanted them to read these three verses, and I wanted them to go home, and I wanted them to study them in the Hebrew, and I wanted them to read every possible commentary that they could find on them. And I know that each person that was here did that. And so, I am going to challenge them now by saying, Dave Wanamaker, I want you to come up and give today's sermon. 
Okay, well, apparently Dave didn't do what I asked, but uh, I, I tried. All right, he's got stage fright, so we'll let him go from this. I'm sure he went home and he read everything on it, and he knows exactly what we're going to speak about today. It is beautiful. It is beautiful what these verses picture, and there's only three of them. And yet, it is so filled with wonder. I just, I, I can't believe it. But I'll tell you what, the life of Jacob has and it will continue to picture things in the Bible and in history itself. And it was true of his time before he left Canaan, and it'll be true now that he is returning to Canaan. And all of the future time that Jacob is going to be mentioned, every word of it is going to picture something future in the Bible, maybe about Jesus, maybe about a certain timeline that Jesus is working on, maybe about something in future history. But it is all right here for us to see. The time from his departure from home, the events before leaving the land of Canaan, and all of his time away from the land of Canaan have painted a beautifully detailed panorama of redemptive history, of Israel as a people, and of his flock, which represents the church, and of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their hopes and desires. Every story has been selected by God to show us this wondrous display as it works toward a beautiful land, one of peace. And we'll see more of this in today's three short verses, which sum up these things in a short, concise picture of what is coming in the future. And I mean in the future to us even today. When we finish today, we're going to be able to more readily grasp the mission of Christ and how he so beautifully completed it for those whom he has called and whom he so dearly loves. We've talked about the doctrine of dispensationalism. I don't want to confuse you if you don't know about that, if you weren't here in these previous sermons, but it is a doctrine which many people deny. They say that Christ is done with Israel and that prophecy has been fulfilled. But the Bible does not teach this. A time is coming when Christ will return and he will rule in Jerusalem in the midst of his people Israel for 1,000 years. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20 of that book, it says this explicitly six times. One has to deny a literal reading of the Bible in order to deny this truth, a truth which stems, I believe personally, from anti-Semitism. It dismisses the truth which God has revealed concerning Israel's future. All right, today's story is going to confirm what dispensationalism teaches as clearly as anything could. We saw the five dispensations prior to Christ's coming in the previous sermons, and then in last week's sermon, in one single verse, we saw the sixth dispensation, which is the church age. And today we will see the seventh and final one as the life of Jacob is used yet again to show us this truth. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Revelation. It's chapter 20. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and he shall reign with him a thousand years. It's explicitly stated here. There is a thousand-year reign of Christ coming. The nations have sought Jesus, and they still seek him out today. Someday, and I mean some glorious day in the future, there will be a time of unmatched peace and blessing upon the face of the earth. Jesus will rule from a city of peace and of joy. The world will be much different than it is right now as the law proceeds from his throne and from Mount Zion. And I'll tell you something else. The six days of creation themselves show us the dispensational timeline. There's 6,000 years of man on earth, and that's prefigured by the six days of creation. And then you have the seventh day, which is not a day of creation. It's a day of rest, and that's pointing to this final 
thousand year period of time, of man's time on earth. And it says that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem and the place of his rest will be glorious. That's exactly what that's pointing to. This place where we can go to be reminded of these things right now is this beautiful treasure which we call the Holy Bible. And so let's go there now and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now I've got four thoughts for you today. The first is once again in the promised land. This is verse 18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram. Now, just in case you use a different translation of the Bible, I'd like you to see this translated in a different way, okay? I just read you the New King James Version, which I always use for my sermons, but there is a different way of translating this, and it's very important that you understand this, okay? I'm going to read first from the New King James, which I just read, and I'm going to read you the King James. Listen carefully to both. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. The King James Version says, and Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem. As you can see, there's a difference in how the two read, and it is not small. It's not small at all. The word Shalem implies that he arrived safely, but it can also be the name of the city that's being referred to. The word means complete, safe, or at peace. It implies wholeness. In the New Testament, in John chapter 3, we read about a place with a very similar name. And so that's why it is probably correct from the King James Version. Here's what it said. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Then they came and were baptized. Now they would have dropped the H just like the King Je or modern translations do. We would say a city called uh, Salem where it's actually Shalem. Well, the Greek would drop the H as well. So they say Salim instead of Shalim. So it's probably the same place it's being referred to in chapter three of John. It could be that the name of the town is correct or this verse could actually be referring back to chapter 28 where Jacob made his vow to the Lord and it's being confirmed as fulfilled here, okay? Let me read that to you. Then Jacob made a vow way back before he left the promised land saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and bring me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So it could be that the name of the place is Shalem or it could be because he's brought back in peace. All right, could be either one of them. So the New King James could be right or the King James could be right. Or there's a third possibility. It's that the fulfillment of chapter 28's words are found in this verse. And so Jacob is going to buy the land and name it based on what happened. In other words, the fact that he arrived in peace becomes the name of the town. Now, I prefer this option. And the reason why is because it's what I thought of. And because it is the fulfillment of what's been. The naming of a city like this is something that happens many times in the Bible. And we saw it last week with the town that he moved to and he called it Sukkot. He named it after the place where he kept his flocks. All right, the town got its name from the act. And that's what's happening here. And I'm certain of that. Names are given in conjunction with the actual occurrence of what happens. This then is Jacob's city of peace based on his arrival home in peace. As you can see, both translations are right but they just don't delineate it because it would just take up too much time and explanation to put that in there. This Shalem is called a city of Shechem, 
Now, he included that name in there for a reason. The name Shechem, here comes your Hebrew lesson, the first of many words. The name Shechem comes from a verb, which is Shecham, which means to rise early. And the noun, which is Shechem, which means shoulder. Okay, these two words taken together indicate the wisdom and the diligence of a person. All right, to rise early is indicative of having a good start to the day. Think of Ben Franklin, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I get up early every single day of my life and I go to bed very early. My wife will tell you that. And I'm still waiting on the wealthy and I'm still waiting on the wise part, but I do have the health, so I thank the Lord for that much of it. But carrying a load on the shoulder also shows diligence, okay? And that's the second word. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read this about the coming Messiah, which is pointing to exactly what we're talking about right now. Most of you will know this verse if you've been in church on a uh, Christmas Eve, okay? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The word there is shikmo, which comes from the word shechem. It's the same word, just in a different construct, okay? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So after giving this name Shechem, the verse then says that it is in the land of Canaan or Canaan. So we need to find out why God put that in there. Canaan means either merchant or servant. The name Canaan is tied to the Hebrew verb Kana. It means to be humbled or to be subdued. Now, once again, I've said this already. I want to make sure you understand this. I'm not trying to give you an unimportant Hebrew lesson. Every word that I'm giving you now, I will tie in at the end, and you'll understand why I'm giving you this. About this word kana, which means humble or subdued, the Ha Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says this. It denoted bringing a proud and recalcitrant people or spirit into subjection. Two examples are going to help us see the intent of this. I'm going to give you the first from Leviticus 23, which speaks of the people obeying or disobeying. If they disobey, they get exiled. And that's what it's speaking about here. I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, meaning exile. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, that's the Hebrew word kana, and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. Okay, that's speaking about the return of the exiles and something future to us now. Even though they're back in the land, what it's speaking about is something that's going to be fulfilled in our future, I believe, after the rapture of the church. The second example is the very famous passage that everyone takes out of context, everybody. But citing it helps all of us make uh, ourselves feel more helpful in a world which is falling apart around us. This one is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble, cannot, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Once again, this is speaking about the people of Israel. It's speaking about the times ahead for Israel after their first exile and now after their second exile. In both of these verses, the Hebrew word kana is the root of Canaan. It's used to show the, that humility is a key condition of God's blessing. Along with these, the Bible notes repeatedly of a peaceful state of humility, which is seen in the exiles after they return to the land of Canaan. All of these show together that humility is something favored by God. And I'm going to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, so that you can apply these to your life. The first is from Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is 
holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Okay, now from the New Testament in the book of Matthew in the 18th chapter, it says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord looks for humility. He does not look for arrogance. And one thing that I bring up time and time again is the concept of works-based salvation. I must do something in order to please God. That is not being humble before the Lord. Because God said, I am going to take my son at some point in human history and I'm going to send him in to fulfill the law that I've given to the people of the world. And then I'm going to crucify him and thus take the law and crucify it with him to that cross. And if we say, I have to do something, something to please God, then we are rejecting the very thing that he has done on our behalf. And that is not humility. The Lord is asking us to humble ourselves like a child. Now, what does that mean? When a child, you, he comes up to you and he says, I'm thirsty. And you say, okay, here, here's a glass of water. They don't question if that is full of poison. They don't question if it's dirty water. They, don't, they simply say thank you and they drink it. And God is asking us to not question what he has done. He is asking us to say, yes, reason things out. Be careful in what you believe. Misdirected faith is wasted faith. But when you have faith, make sure that it is with humility in accepting God's provision right off the bat, without questioning him and without adding to it. Okay, now, so far in this verse, we've looked at the name of three places. We've looked at Shalem, at Shechem, and at Canaan. But God included a fourth in this verse, too. It notes that this is where Jacob came to after he left from Padan Aram. It was many, many sermons ago that we learned that Padan Aram means elevated ransom. A ransom is a price that's paid to redeem something. If something is in a pawn shop, for example, it can be redeemed or ransomed out of that pawn shop by paying a set price to get it out of hock. The Bible's idea of a ransom is that we are sold under sin and that we must be brought out of that state in order to be reconciled to God. There was a very, very high cost to redeem fallen man. And Jacob's travels up to Padan Aram showed that to us. We saw it sermon after sermon after sermon. Jacob left his home and he went to the place of elevated ransom in order to someday be reconciled to his brother Esau. Jesus left his dwelling place as well. He left his heavenly dwelling place to come here and to pay a very high price to redeem fallen man, thus reconciling us to God. So here, here's something for you to think about. If Jesus came to pay this price, then how can we say that we are not worth his efforts? And I'm not saying we're worthy of his efforts. I'm saying we're not worth his efforts. In other words, people may say, I, I will fail Jesus, and so I just can't come to him. And that is, what, what that is is self-idolatry. It's saying that my sin is greater than God's grace and greater than his cross. And that in itself is putting a bar or a barrier between us and God. We are of infinite worth to God because he sent his infinitely worthy son to die for us. So that's the point that we need to take from this idea of a ransoming. No, we are not worthy of it, but we are have the worth to him. I hope you see the difference there because this is something that people struggle with. I struggle with it. You know, God, how could you save me? Every day I wake up and I do something so utterly stupid or I think something so horribly perverted that I think if people knew what I thought, they wouldn't even want to talk to me. How could you love me? 
But I cannot put that above what he has already done for me in the person of Jesus, and neither can you, okay? This verse also here that we're looking at right here, verse 18, shows a dual picture. It's not just about Jesus and his ransom and how he's going to do it. It is also a picture of the nation of Israel. Jacob has been in what we would call a type of exile from the promised land. It resulted from his wrong actions when he deceived his father. Okay, but he's the one that holds the birthright, he holds the blessing, and he holds the promises. Just as Israel, the people, have the same. They hold the birthright, they hold the blessing, and they hold the promises. This picture, then, is seen in the people of Israel as they've twice been sent out of the land for evil doing, despite having those promises and those blessings. Okay, they were exiled to Babylon, they were exiled to Rome. But they're a picture of what Jacob is doing here. It's a minor picture above the greater picture of Jesus' work. Verse 18 continues, and he pitched his tent before the city. The last thing that's noted in this verse is that Jacob pitched his tent before the city. Now, he probably did this because he had so much livestock and so many people living with him that the city couldn't hold him. Cities at that time, and if you go to Israel, you'll see this. It's the, the old city of Jerusalem is a walled structure. And all of these old cities back then had walls around them. All of the agricultural work was done outside of the city, in the fields, okay? Because Jacob is a shepherd, it makes sense that he would stay in the outer areas and not move into the city. Now, to pitch one's tent is a very, very important concept, and I want you to remember this because it's going to come up in more sermons as we go along. It means to come and to reside. Jacob is picturing Jesus here. Our bodies are called tents. Paul calls it that in the New Testament, and it's alluded to in what we saw last week. Okay, this is a picture right here of Christ coming again to reside in the city of peace, Shalem. Is anybody seeing it yet? It's coming. I tell you, it's coming and you'll understand it. Our second thought today, a purchased possession. Verse 19, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Because the fields which are surrounding a city are where the city grows its crops, it was right for Jacob to pay for the land that he was camping on. If he didn't, and this is, there's two things that will come out of this. First, he'd be considered a freeloader on the people because they built the town and that's their land. Also, this purchase is made and recorded, but it does not mean that Jacob intended to settle down there. Instead, rather than settling there, he's simply dealing honestly with the people around him. He's maintaining harmony with them, and he's keeping them from making any later claims on his flocks and on his wealth by them saying that his wealth was derived from them. He used our flocks, and therefore this is our stuff. And if you're seeing Jesus in here and what he has done for us, that's exactly what I want you to see. This piece of land is where Joseph, who is Jacob's 11th son and the future vice regent of the land of Egypt, is going to be buried many, many years later. After the exodus, they're going to carry his bones out at the exodus as he requested, and they're going to bury him right here. Let me read this to you. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, the, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Okay, uh, Jacob, before he died, gave this land to Joseph. And after he died, he said, I want to be carried to this piece of land that my father has given me. Okay? This is also the spot, the exact same spot where Jesus sat by a well in Samaria after a day of traveling. And he spoke to a woman about the living waters which will flow 
out of him. And I want to read you this whole account. It's a little bit long, but understand that this is happening right in this spot that we're looking at right now. This is from uh, John chapter 4. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Okay, Jacob not only bought the land, but he obviously dug a well there. It's recorded in the Bible. Okay, it says, uh, Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means it's 12 o'clock noon, according to the uh, Gospel of John. All right, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, if you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Now I want to tell you a little bit about this. And I didn't read the entire account, but that's enough to get you to understand what is happening here. This woman went out at 12 o'clock in the afternoon to get water. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, I can tell you it is punishing at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is very, very direct. It's very hot. And as we learned from a, a sermon many, 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 many sermons ago, when uh, Rebecca went out to get well, it was in the evening. They would go in the morning and they'd go again in the evening because it was a time where they could one, meet with people, and two, they could associate and it would be nice and cool. This lady's going in the very heat of the day because no people are going to be there. She is completely, as you would find if you read the rest of this, unworthy. She's been married five times and the man that she's with right now is not her husband. And so she's going out there because she's an outcast from a city full of outcasts. Because she says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Samaritans were like rubbish to the Jewish people. They were just nobodies. So she's an outcast of outcasts. And yet Jesus sets sits down with her and he says give me some water and she's astonished and then the disciples are astonished what is he doing talking to this lady in the middle of the day what's she doing out here and the entire point that i'm trying to make for you is to understand that jesus christ really came for the lowest of the low and if he did that and that's you then he came for you i can tell you he came for me and i'm lower than whatever low you were no doubt about it my wife and brothers and mother will tell you that but he came for every single person despite their station in life and despite what they've done. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a hooker, it doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict or a, think of any perverted thing you can think of. He came for you if you were simply willing to receive him. He will cleanse you of all of that and he will give you a new direction and a new life. But I brought that in because this story is pointing exactly back to where we're looking at in Genesis, okay? This is a very important spot in the pages of the Bible, and a great deal of our Christian and our spiritual heritage is derived right from these three verses. It is this spot which Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor. Now, Shechem's father, he, Hamor is Shechem's father. Hamor, his name is given, even though he's the father. He's not the person that was actually bought from. But because his name is given, God is trying to ask us to think on why. His name means he asks. A male donkey, in other words, a beast of burden. And it gets its name from its reddish color. Hamor kind of, it, you derive that thought from it, its reddish color. 
All right, it's the same word, the exact same word used to describe the animal that the Messiah rode into on the uh, Palm Sunday, which was into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, if you remember that story. Now, it's recorded in both the Old Testament, which would be this word hamor, and then the New Testament, which is in Greek. And I want to read this to you. This is from the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a hamor, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jacob purchases the field from the children of Hamor for 100 pieces of money. One more word I have to give you here. The word for money is the Hebrew word kesita. It indicates, interestingly, a lamb. And we get this because the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word as amnos, which is a lamb. But not just a lamb, it's a sacrificial lamb, okay? Some people think that the word kesita was the value of one lamb. And that's why they're called lambs. That's not it at all. A kesita was a coin stamped with a lamb, which was a very popular motif, all right? The name is given to the coin, not because of its value, but because of its marking. We do this even today with our own money. Hey, give me a Ben Franklin, okay? That's what we're trying to derive out of this right here. I'm gonna tie that in here shortly. Our third thought today, El Elohe Yisrael. Verse 20, then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Yisrael. All the time that Jacob was out of the land, and we've been going many, many sermons, he never built an altar. It's not recorded at all. It's in building any altar. But his time of exile is over, and he has been returned to the land of his fathers, just as God promised him. If you remember last week, I asked you to remember, uh, I asked you to pay attention to the fact that where he was in Sukkot was east of the Jordan. He had not yet come into the promised land. This is the first Time that he's come to the promised land in over 20 years, okay? And there on this piece of land that he just paid for, Shalem, he built an altar. Before he left Canaan 20 years earlier, he made a vow to God that he would do something if God would protect him and return him home safely. In chapter 28, when he erected a pillar to God, he said these words, and this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. The purchase of the land and the building of the altar are tied together here by these verses. And so the purchase of the land may be a partial fulfillment of that vow. I'm going to give you a tenth. Buying land and dedicating it to God would certainly be considered that type of a, a fulfillment. This is an interim step right here on his way to Bethel where he made the vow. Okay, The naming of the place Shalem must be correct as the King James Version says, because he's building this altar and he's building it with a name. God, the God of Israel in Shalem. He was provided peace and in fulfillment of that, he named the place in honor of the peace that was given. All is safe and there is peace or Shalem. In honor of this, he names the altar El Elohe Yisrael, which means God, the God of Israel. Thus, as a fulfillment of the vow, the land on which the altar is built is set apart to God, okay? The name El Elohe Yisrael signifies the all-powerful God who fulfilled his word to Jacob and brought him back to the land of promise after 20 years of perils. It also acknowledges the new name that he was given, Israel. 
This new name was given to him during the encounter with the angel of the Lord in that wrestling match at night by the Jabbok River. In acknowledgement of the name and in honor of this mighty God, he gives the altar its name, El Elohe Israel. Curiously, and this is just something that I want you to remember for future sermons because I'm going to bring it in again. This is the exact same spot that Abraham first came to after he entered the promised land, way back in Genesis 12. Let me read this to you. Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Just like his grandfather, more than 250 years earlier, Jacob enters the land and he builds an altar. The land is again consecrated to the God of promise and the God who fulfills promises. Our fourth and final thought today, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So here we are, we've got three verses which stand alone after Jacob's encounter with his brother Esau, okay? They don't fit in there at all. They're a completely separate account. We had him meeting Esau, then he went to Sukkot, which was all by itself a whole sermon, as I said last week, but I included it with last week's sermon. And then you got these three verses, which are completely separate. And God has separated them for a reason. And it cannot be said that these verses fit in with the account that's coming in chapter 34. If you know that account, this is where the daughter of Jacob is raped. Her name is Dinah. It has nothing to do at all with this account here, other than that it's happening in the same location. All right? So these verses, these three verses here are set off by themselves, and they ask us, therefore, to reflect on why God included them in his word. In order to understand them, we have to go back and we have to look at every single thing that's happened since he left Canaan. We've traveled through 16 sermons in that time, and it encompasses about 20 years of his life. And I want you to know, in order for me to give you all the information from those 16 sermons, we're going to be here till about 3 o'clock this morning. So if you have to go to the bathroom, please go right now, and I'll wait for you and then come back. Okay, I'm kidding, of course, but I am going to give you a recap of those 16 verses. All right, he left the land, Canaan, after leaving Bethel, and he went up to Padanaram, where he met Rachel at a well. That account showed us what would occur in the life of Jesus in order to procure people from all groups of the world, from Jew, from Jew-Gentile, and from Gentile. Okay? It pictured his work, which culminated in the resurrection, which was symbolized by the removing of the stone from the mouth of the well. The next account showed us the work that Jacob did for his wives. He worked seven years for Leah and then seven more years for Rachel. And this pictured going from the Old Testament law to the New Testament grace. After that, we saw the birth of the first four sons to Leah, including the fourth son, which is Judah. Judah was born under the law, in other words, and through whom Christ would come. After this came the addition of two more wives for Jacob. These two wives pictured as clearly as anything could be seen the two exiles of the people of Israel, the Babylonian exile and the Roman exile, which just ended in our lifetime, some of our lifetimes. Okay, after that, the next account was the birth of two more sons and a daughter to Leah, and the son named Joseph born to Rachel. Each child reflected the work of Christ culminating in the naming of Joseph. And if you remember, I mentioned this last week, he was the only son that was given his name based on two words instead of one word. His name is Joseph. It was based on Asaf, which means to take away, and Yosef, which means to add. Jesus took away the reproach of the law, pictured by Leah, and he added us to his fold through the New Testament grace, which is pictured by Rachel. 
okay? From there came the building of the flocks immediately afterward. The flocks symbolized the people of the church during the church age and during Israel's dispersion. Then after that, we saw the account of how this was done. Jacob used peeled rods and he placed them in the watering trough to grow his flock of specially marked animals. The rods pictured the writings of Paul. If you saw that sermon, it makes 100%. It's as clear as it could be once you see it. So here are Paul's writings, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. Through understanding the work of Christ and accepting that work, we are sealed by him with the Holy Spirit, and we are set apart as members of Christ's flock. That's what that pictured. No sooner was the flock uh, finished, which pictures the church, okay, then Jacob was told by God to return to the land of Canaan. This portion was given to show us the world's treatment of Israel during their exile, which occurred during the church age. And we know how badly they've been treated, even by the church. Then right after this came Jacob's flight. It was at this time that Rachel stole her father's idols. The account pictured the preparation of Israel for the return to their land once again. And during this story, the stealing of the idols set up the next account where the father, who was Laban, would come and search their camp. In that account, Laban came to search for the idols in the tents of the family members. And if you remember the very peculiar order of the way that the Bible described his search. Scholars don't understand why is it described this way. It was very complicated. It's because it was picturing the two exiles of Israel. It also showed that someday they will be found guiltless because there's no idols to be found. They will turn to the Lord completely and no longer be a people that are disposed to idolatry, which they are even to this day. I mean, I know many Jews that are disposed to idolatry. As a reminder, All of this that we saw is clearly laid out in the rest of the Bible. This isn't just something that I've been inserting as I've been going. And that's why I'm very careful to show you each word and what God is trying to show us in the New Testament fulfillment. These pictures have been given in a very specific order to show us what will happen in a manner which will be understood when they occur. Anyway, when the search of Laban was over, the next account showed us a picture of the Bible itself, what its structure would be like, how it came about, and what it centers on, which is Jesus Christ. This happened on Mount Gilead, the perpetual fountain, showing us that the Bible issues from God's throne, his fountain. After this was another picture of Israel, which was the two camps. If you remember that story, Mahanaim, it pictured the division of Israel into two different groups of people, Judah and Israel during the Old Testament times, and its eventual reuniting as a single group of people, which has happened in our lifetime. The next four verses were Jacob's great prayer of faith, which came about right before he met with his brother Esau. Then came the preparation for the encounter and the five gifts that he gave, which were sent in advance of the meeting. And these represented the five dispensations of human history right before Christ's coming, okay? After that was the story of Jacob wrestling in the night with the man. It showed the faithfulness of God and his necessity to preserve Israel based on his own moral character. For Israel to be defeated would mean a defeat for God. His reliability to perform his word is actually tied up in the people of Israel and in his son as our Lord. In the next account, Jacob finally meets up with Esau. It's the one we did last week. And in this meeting, we saw the reconciliation between the Lord and fallen man. God is dwelling with man by dwelling in man. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is reflected by the naming of the place that Jacob moved to and that he stayed at, Sukkot, 
or tabernacles. God is dwelling or tabernacling with man. This is the sixth dispensation and it's what's happening in human history right now. It is the church age. After all of this, which is way too far brief of a recap, we come to today's three verses and what we are to learn about the glory of this story. It is given to sum up the life of Jacob for the past 20 years and for us to reflect on what's occurred. In one sense, it pictures God's faithfulness to return Israel to the land after their period of exile. This is true, I told you, that's one of the lesser implications of what this is telling us. However, despite this minor picture, we have a larger one. Jacob is picturing Christ fulfilling his dispensational timeline. He left the true promised land and he came to earth to perform his work. During that time, he fulfilled the law and he redeemed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue for himself. He built a flock and he has given us his word to live by. He accomplished every single thing he set out to do, thus reconciling fallen man to God. His deeds have replaced what Adam did and have brought us new life. The enmity between Esau and Jacob is ended and the enmity between Adam and Jesus has ended. In the three verses today, we see the millennial reign of Christ, the seventh and final dispensation of man's time on earth. Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem. Shalem, as I said, means complete, safe, or at peace. In essence, it indicates wholeness or completion. It is the same word, the exact same word used to describe Jerusalem twice in the Bible. The first is found in that great passage about Melchizedek, which was from Genesis chapter 14. Let me read this to you. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And, okay, now that's the first one. The second one is from the 76th Psalm. Now listen carefully to this and think of the millennial reign of Christ that's coming. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Shalem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle, Selah. If you read this Psalm, and I'm talking about the whole Psalm, it is surely speaking of the dwelling of Christ in Jerusalem after the tribulation period. It ties so perfectly with what's being shown in this picture from Jacob's life that the Psalm and the account are in essence inseparable. It says in Shalem also is his tabernacle, his Sukkot. That's the word that's used there for uh, the Lord dwelling in Zion. It uses the word tabernacle. It is the millennial reign with Christ dwelling in Jerusalem in a garment of flesh. That is exactly what it's speaking of and it's prefigured in the verses we're looking at right here. After all of what Jacob has pictured in the work of Christ since he left Canaan, there is a time when the work is done and it is time to rule over his family and rule over his flocks from the land of Canaan. Shalem is said to be a city of Shechem. The city's meaning indicated, as I told you, intelligence or wisdom and diligence. It is the city where those who are wise and diligent will dwell. It is those who have been redeemed by Christ up until the time of the millennial reign. They have understood his gospel message. They've been diligent to receive it. And also we see that Shechem is noted as being in the land of Canaan. All right, we saw that Canaan means the humble ones, those who have humbled themselves and they sought the Lord's face and turned from their wicked ways. They are those who God has heard from heaven. He's forgiven their sins. He's healed their land. They're no longer boastful. They're no longer proud. They are those who have come under his covenant care. 
This return to Canaan was noted as being after his time in Padanaram. Remember I told you I was going to tie every one of these in with this. Padanaram means the place of elevated ransom. Jesus left the world of fallen, he left heaven for the world of fallen people in order to pay this truly high ransom. If we go to Isaiah chapter 51, we read about those who are ransomed, who will return to Zion. Zion is the land of Israel. That's why it's called the Zionist movement. And it is specifically speaking of this time of the millennial reign. Let me read this to you from Isaiah 51. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It was his life, the life of Jesus Christ, for our sins. He paid that debt, he left, and now he is returning during this millennial reign, and he's going to dwell in Shalem, which is Jerusalem. There in Canaan, it says he purchased the land. This is the place where his family and flocks could stay, speaking of Jacob. These pictured Israel, and they pictured the church in those past stories, and they're with him now. Jesus has reserved a spot for those that he has redeemed. This land was purchased from the sons of Hamor, okay? But it notes in the Bible, it doesn't say that it was bought from Hamor, it was bought from his sons. And that's very important to understand because his name is being included without any real context. His name, as I said, means donkey. It indicates a beast of burden, one that carries a load. And the reason why he's introduced this way is to show us that he is representing the world at large. He is a picture of the people of the world whose burden is heavy and whose life is toil. The reddish color of this donkey takes us right back to Adam because he's named based on the soil of the earth, which is the red color. Toiling in the soil, his eyes are downward, he's working in thorns and thistles because of the curse of man. A purchase is made from this guy's sons, which is a picture of the sons of the world. And the purchase was made for 100 kesetas, or lambs. One Bible scholar that I found, a guy named Parkhurst, rightly sees these coins as typifying the Lamb of God. Here's what he says, in the divine purpose was considered as slain from the foundation of the world and whose purchase on us unto God with his own blood. Parkhurst's thoughts come from two New Testament verses. The first is from Revelation 13 verse eight, which says that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. But he also ties in his thought to Acts 20, verse 28. It says there, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, remember we're talking about the flocks, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So you see why that word keseta has been included in this particular passage. This is what's being pictured here. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ, work that actually began before the foundation of the world. In God's mind, it was already done but it's prefigured and it's pictured by the selected events of the life of a man named Jacob who left the promised land, went to a place of elevated ransom and is now returned to the city of peace, Shalem, and he's dwelling with his people. All of this has been tied in from these past chapters and you can't understand one without understanding the entire course of what he's done. After the payment for the land, both in gratitude to God and in completion of his journey, and as an interim fulfillment of his vow, Jacob erects an altar to the mighty God who had watched over him, who had tended to him, and who had safely brought him home. This altar pictures the temple 
and the temple worship, which will be in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. And I got to tell you what, I've been there and I have seen those temple implements with my own eyes. I know my wife has too. They're right there and they're ready to be used. People that say that a temple isn't coming, I got bad news for you. It is coming and that's what's being pictured right here. It is referred to many, many times in the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Ezekiel, the last 10 chapters almost exclusively deal with this temple that will be there during the millennial reign. It's referred to in the book of Revelation as well. Chapter 11 of Revelation speaks of the, the Temple Mount and leaving the outer court out because it's uh, given over to the, uh, the Gentiles. All right, it's right there for us to see this. By proclaiming the name El Elohe Israel, he's acknowledging his understanding that the man that he struggled with there by the Jabbok River is that God. He is the one who gave him the new name, He's the man by the river. He's the Lord of the covenant. He's the keeper of the promises. He's the one who stood above the ladder in the dream. He's the one who is the ladder. And he's the one who is the rock on which he placed his head. He's the giver of the spirit. He's the payer of the ransom. He's the defender of his people. He's the one to fulfill the law. And he's the one to bestow God's grace. He is Jesus. He is the true Israel who bestowed upon Jacob that sacred name as an indication that he struggled with God and he prevailed. He is Jesus. Everything that we've seen in these past sermons has led to this point today. It has all been laid out before us to show us the work of God in Christ by these pictures of the selected events in Jacob's life. Jacob is now in Shalem, in the land of Canaan with his children and his flock. In the millennial reign of Christ, he will be in Jerusalem ruling over his flock as well. As a testament to this time of peace, which is ahead, it's coming very soon, I believe, we read these words from Isaiah chapter 11, which are speaking of this millennial reign. Old Testament speaking about what's coming in our future. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Jesus, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious, the city of Shalem, the city of peace and rest. This is why the name El Elohe Yisrael was given. It is telling us that this story from almost 4,000 years ago, the God, the God of Israel is the man who will dwell in Jerusalem, the city of peace, in the seventh dispensation of man's time on earth. Whether you know it or not, and you may not realize this, but you are one of the people that is pictured in this story today. You're either a son of Adam, pictured by Hamor, whose life is one which is marked from separation by God and toil, or you are one of the redeemed of God in Christ, who has the absolute assurance of eternal life in the heavenly promised land. If you've never made a commitment to this Lord, who took so much time to detail these stories for your benefit so you could see his work, his hand in human history, I want to ask you just another minute to explain to you once again why Christ came and how it's important to you so that you can make that commitment if you've never done it before. The Bible tells us in these stories, it tells us all the way through that we are sons of Adam. Adam violated God's law, he sinned, and sin entered the stream of humanity. And we inherit Adam's sin. We don't need to do anything wrong to be condemned. Jesus said in uh, uh, John 3:18 that those who don't believe are condemned already. We are already on the highway to destruction. What Jesus came to do was to bring us 
out of that path and to lead us onto a new path. So here we are in a stream of time. The sin is committed here and we've inherited the sin. And because time is going forward, we can't go back before what Adam did and change it. Only God can because he is outside of time. And so what did he do? He came from this eternal dwelling and he came into the stream of humanity, born without sin because he was born of God the Father and of Mary. He entered a woman's womb without inheriting the sin which comes through the Father. And so now he is fully qualified to replace what Adam did. But he needs to fulfill the law in order to be to affect what he wants to do. So he lives his life, and that's what the Gospels record. Jesus fulfilling the law that we cannot fulfill. And then at the end of fulfilling the law, he gave up his life as a sacrifice of atonement to cover the sins that we bear. That's what God did. He came out of this infinite realm into the finite realm, and he says, I will make peace with my Father for you if you will trust in me. And he says, there is no other way for this to happen. If you will accept my work, I will make all well with you. Take my burden upon you and I will take away your burden, okay? And his burden, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's simple. All you have to do according to Paul in the New Testament is to call on the name of the Lord. Lord, I can't do it. I know that I can't go back and undo what Adam did and I can't undo the things I've screwed up in my own life and I want Jesus to forgive me. And the Bible says if you will make that one pronouncement and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. That's all he asks of you. And I would ask that you make that pronouncement today, not to leave here before you do, because you don't know if you're going to get hit on the way out of here or not. You don't know what's coming. Anyway, I'll tell you uh, a closing verse for today comes from Zechariah chapter 14, and this is speaking, once again, of the millennial reign of Christ. People that deny this, I don't know how they can do that, but I believe it comes from uh, anti-Semitism and not wanting to believe that God really is so faithful to his covenant that he would recall the people that have been unfaithful to him for thousands and thousands of years. Here's what it says. In that day, speaking of a day in the future, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sanctifies shall sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. No more Canaanites. It's all going to be the redeemed of the Lord. Now, two weeks from now, Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. Remember, this is two weeks from now. And this is called, for best results, stick to the blueprint. This will be our 84th Genesis sermon. And I want to tell you that chapter 34 is a single story. But I can't do the entire chapter in one sermon. I just don't think it's possible. It took me three sermons to type it up. So it's going to take three weeks for us to get through chapter 34. But I will tell you this, that chapter 34, speaking of the rape of Dinah, okay, and what happens after that is so important. Women are very, very infrequently mentioned in the Bible. That's not to diminish women's roles, but the things that happen in the Jewish society come through the man. But this is dealing almost solely with one person. I'll give you another clue. God is never mentioned in chapter 34, ever, not one time, all right? And Jacob doesn't speak almost at all until the very end of the chapter. So those are some things for you to think about as you read that chapter and think, why is this so important that God put it right after something about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Because the story after that in chapter 35 deals with something that is in the Bible, but it happens after the millennial reign of Christ. Why would God include this right 
there an entire chapter about a, a girl getting raped and what her brothers do. It is as important a concept as you will find anywhere in the Bible, and it's taught all the way through the Bible. So please think on those lines as you're reading that chapter and getting ready for the next three sermons. Another thing I'll tell you is that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you, so call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? One more thing before we take communion. I have a poem I do every week. It's a very short one because we only had three verses this week. It's based on those three verses. It's called God, the God of Israel. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, you see, when he came from Padanaram. And he pitched his tent before the city. His flocks in the fields must have looked so pretty. And he bought the parcel of land without a bother where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father. For 100 pieces of money he spent. Then he erected an altar there on the land and called it El Elohe Yisrael. Let us understand. He is the mighty God, the God of Israel, the one who tends to and watches over us. He is the one of whom all these stories do tell. He is our Lord, our Savior, our God. He is Jesus. Let us always and forever praise and exalt his holy name and proclaim his deeds among the world's people. Into the stream of humanity this marvelous one came. Let us praises be proclaimed from every church steeple. Thank you, for Lord, for your care and tending to us. And receive our praises, Lord, our praises for Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful unfolding story that comes from the life of Jacob, your servant, your failing servant, just as each person here is. And I would ask that if there is a person here who has never called on Jesus and asked him to forgive him or her to forgive him of their sins, that they would do that, that they would just make their lives right with Jesus and know that they don't have to fix themselves, that we don't go to a doctor in order to, uh, we don't cure ourselves before we go to a doctor, but rather we take all of our sickness and we go to the doctor and he heals us. We sometimes try to get it backwards, Lord, and forgive us for that and help us to remember that Jesus will heal us if we simply come to him. And Lord, please bless each person here in the two weeks ahead while we're not meeting and uh, uh, fill their table with food, fill their hearts with joy, fill their uh, friendships with just abundance and smiles and friendship. And every person that walks in and out of the doors of their home, may there be peace and contentment and joy. And Lord, help each person here to be wise enough to remember that when they do receive the blessings that, that they get from you, that they will turn around and thank you for those blessings and give you praises for those blessings. You're worthy of all of it and so much more. How failing we are with our tongues when we speak of you. But please help each one of us to remember to not be that way, but to just continually speak your praises and thanks to you. We love you. We praise you. All glory, all majesty, all honor, all of it. All of it belongs to you alone. And we say these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.